Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. You know, and it was an Italian fashion to kind of the bravado and everything. And, and all these guys are walking around armed. So in, inevitably, uh-huh. they started stabbing each other. And, um, <laughs> and they started wounding each other really badly, but not killing each other, you know, because they were really unskilled. You know, they'd like stab each other a few times in a back alley and walk away bleeding and then die seven days later of septicemia or something, you know. Hey guys, and welcome to this week's episode of Fanatics, the podcast where we talk about things we love, you love, and uh, things everybody loves all around the world. I am Claire Kramer, one of your co-hosts, and this week I have Jake Marin with me. Hi, Jake. Hey, Claire. Good to be here again. Jake, what is what is your favorite moment in Fanatics so far? What would you say is like, you know, out of these last four or five episodes, what what is uh, a shining moment? Oh, gosh. I mean, there have been a lot of moments. I mean, other than me, obviously. Other than Claire, obviously. You know, <laughs> if, if I'm being honest, I'm really excited about today's episode because we get to talk to Elliot from E.T. Yeah, that's right. Henry Thomas, who's also been in uh, Midnight Mass, The Haunting of Hill House, and Gangs of New York, and I'm a big fan of his, and I'm excited to talk about the topic of historical combat and martial arts. It's crazy. So maybe it's a cop-out, Claire, but I'm saying today is the highlight. I feel like I grew up with him, even though I haven't known him that long, because he was just one of those child actors that was so good. He didn't have that child actor persona. He just was like a great actor in a little person's body, kind of like Dakota Fanning. And I feel like I just grew up watching him and he's such a nice guy. And, you know, yes. And talking about historical combat, jousting and fencing is such an interesting topic. And Henry is such an interesting guy that, you know, it's it's, nuts. It's It's just great. He also has another production coming up. I just want to mention the fall of the House of Usher, which I'm very much looking forward to seeing. Right. And it's so crazy. You know, the first time I ever saw him was in E.T. So to see this kid go into movies like The Gangs of New York and all these other horror, horror TV shows he's in, it's awesome. And to hear him talk about this topic, which honestly, I would have never pegged him as being a fan of historical uh, uh, martial arts and historical combat, but it's awesome that this is his passion. Yes. And uh, let's take a listen. So Henry, is jousting the only 
historic mounted type of combat? Uh, well, it's, you know, the most famous, but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there were also other forms of mounted combat. You know, there were all sorts of different kinds of tournaments that were played out in different historical ages, you know, like up until the Victorian times, well, even up until modern times, really, in reenactments and certain, uh, you know, medieval reenactment clubs uh, do that sort of thing. But, you know, there's a great tradition of horsemanship in, in any martial context, and especially militarily, it was useful to train young guys coming up. And it was also a way of the nobility kind of showing their affluence and power and skill. Ah, right? I, so. I, I agree. Jousting is the most famous, I guess, of mounted combat. And I'm excited to learn more today. If you have a guest, we are talking about historical martial arts and mounted combat through the past several centuries. And Henry, can you just give our listeners a broad or define definition of what that exactly means? Like what is historical martial arts mounted combat? What is that? Uh, so, you know, in effect, that's jousting. Um, you know, <laughs> that's pretty much how everybody would recognize it. And there were different kinds of jousts. And, and today, you know, uh, it, at different uh, reenactments and, and certain modern tournaments, you know, they have specific rules for that tournament that mimic certain historical rules. But, you know, it was kind of not set in stone for a while. It, mm -hmm. it, it was always changing. And, and I think, you know, like any sport, it's always kind of evolving, right? Mm -hmm. And in a broader sense, now we've got, uh, you know, modern fencing. And if you go back to the roots of modern fencing, kind of goes back to the 19th century only. I mean, there's this whole vast history there that stretches back to, you know, some of, in the West, some of the first manuscripts, uh, you know, are coming from the, the late uh, 13th century and, and a lot in the 14th and 15th centuries, and even more like up until the 17th centuries. And a lot of these, you know, a lot of people don't know about these, but, um, of course, now Western martial arts has kind of a big following and Western martial arts is all kind of fencing with, with a, a sword that, you know, most people would say a two-handed sword, but it's actually closer to a bastard sword. It's a long sword and modern long sword fencing is kind of the most popular of, of the Western martial arts today. Mm-hmm. Interesting. You mentioned that, you know, the aristocracy, this used to be kind of a symbol, you know, people could have horses or they'd be dressed up to go to these tournaments. Uh, is that something that, you know, fencing came from as well? Did, did people fence? Uh, were they, you know, people of means? Yeah, uh, they were people of means because, you know, back in the day, if you were someone of means, it meant that you were part of the nobility, which meant that you were part of the, the, feudal class, you know, you, you, you had an obligation to someone that was above you to provide so many soldiers and, you know, kind of like a military unit that he could call upon at any time. So, you know, as a young nobleman, uh, if you were a knight, 
you know, as, as, as modern people would kind of recognize it, you would, you would kind of begin your training at seven years old, kind of wrestling and learning horsemanship skills. And, and then you'd move on to fencing lessons with, you know, as, as you progressed, your training would progress and you'd get older and joust with the other kids. And, you know, it was all, it was a, it was a system, it was a social system, but it was also um, a military system, you know, and these guys were like, <laughs> you know, they're like little billionaires running around, you know, encased in armor, like riding at each other <laughs> with lances, you know, and almost killing each other, sometimes killing each other. You know, it was like a huge investment. It would be like a Formula One racing team, uh, like a jousting you know, someone who is competing in, in tournaments and things. You talked about like sort of the military aspect. Has that transferred fully into a sports aspect now? Or is there any part of the military in Europe, in the UK, that still practices this type of art form or, or combat, I guess? Has combat become an art form? That's an art form. That's my question. Yeah, I mean, as far as I know, it's all this sort of thing has all progressed into martial arts, you know, reenactment sort of area. I don't know of any military units. Uh, I know that there's still military units that that train cavalry and sabers and things like that, but I don't know how serious it is if it's more for a parade or. Uh, you know, dress than, than practicality. I don't know, Henry, those uh, Canadian mounted police are pretty tough. Hey, there you go. I'm not, and I don't want them coming after me. Right. Exactly. You're good. (laughs) I'm good. This is so fascinating to me, especially talking about these kids starting at seven. Could you imagine your kids starting training for anything at seven? Forget combat, but just anything. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to, get seven-year-olds to do anything I know from experience, but, uh, <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I think, you know, it was part of, it would have been like going to school, you know, who's been going to uh, night school. Ha ha ha. <laughs> no, uh, my, my friend uh, d- down near San Diego, uh, he's a guy named Jeffrey Hedgecock and he makes, armor uh, for a living he, he he also was a you know professional jouster still is a professional jouster uh and holds tournaments in the area he learned his craft and and studied museum pieces and has made uh amazing uh, harnesses you know that are really historically completely accurate and and down to the weight and the thickness and the metal and everything so uh, you know, just getting fitted for a, a, a suit like that. I know from experience because I have one of his, but, uh, uh, next question. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, getting, getting fitted for a suit like that is a, is a process. And then to the, the investment of it and everything, you know, it's, uh, these guys were very valuable members of society and, and, you know, the, the, the better the training, the, uh, the more useful they would be in the field and, and the more likely they would be to survive. 
because well, it was I, quite dangerous. I want to talk to you about how this interest originated, but I can't let it go. Tell me about the fitting of the suit. Like how many Please. fittings? We all know like wedding dresses take three or four fittings, you know, if you're wearing wardrobe, it takes, but you're talking about like literal metal. So how many, how many fittings, what happens? Talk us through Henry, the process of getting a custom suit made for you now in, you know, 2022. Okay. Well, it's, uh, I think it's probably about the same as it would have been back in the 15th century. You know, if you went to like one of these big armory, our armor houses in, in Milan or something like that's, you know, or, um, in, in Southern Germany, you know, they were in there, they were, they were all around there. That was like the Riviera of armor, you know, you'd send your, your, your guy there and get fitted. Um, or he would send someone to you, right? That's that's the real uh, that's the real mark of nobility, I suppose. Right. They come to you. <laughs> they come um, to you, yeah. Yeah. Well, see, I had to go. I had to go to him. So you know, <laughs> that's where I stand on on the ladder. But basically, you go and uh, there are a couple of really tricky bits to fit the area around your your calves, right? Uh, on your lower leg, which is called the greave, uh, that's where, you know, the fitting is very particular. And also uh, your back, mm. um, because the back mm-hmm. plate and the, and the chest uh, plate have to kind of, you know, contour. Like a clamshell. <laughs> well, it has to, <laughs> yeah, hopefully not. <laughs> you don't want that. Um, no, but, but uh you know, it's it's kind of like it's in several pieces. The the whole mm-hmm. kind of cuirass, which is the the chest piece. Uh, so there are several floating parts, so that it's not all rigid. In in my particular suit, in particular, which uh, particular being, it's a 15th century suit. Mm. Nice. Um, now, do you do you wear this suit quite often? Because if I had it, that's what I'm wearing at least once a week. You know, Casual Friday, it's coming on. Well, it's the most expensive suit that I own. But after I had it made, I was like, you have to stay the same size. You can't expand mm-hmm. or contract because oh. uh, then your your metal armor won't fit. So, you know, it's a good incentive to stay in shape. <laughs> and you know what? That is also a problem that, that I'm sure has been century long issue with armor. You know? Yeah, I, that's not yeah, exclusive to today. That's you. You had that stuff made. That was it. You know. Yeah. No more. No second chances or you know redos. That is There's really no life expectancy. Your life yeah. expectancy wasn't that long, so you didn't have you didn't have a, <laughs> a, a great margin for error anyway. But uh, uh, yeah, so basically, I went down. And I got casts uh, made there in, in his shop of, of my, my arms and my calves. And, you know, he took several measurements and general measurements. And, and uh, you know, we discussed, like, elements of design. You know, uh, there are all sorts of cool stuff that you can kind of cull through effigies and different things uh and 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 paintings and and Mm -hmm. actual artifacts uh so you know and 
And there's also a provenance. So certain armors from certain regions uh, look differently in, in, you know, in, in the same contemporary uh, suits, right? So like you get mm -hmm. a suit from Italy, you can tell like, oh, that's an Italian suit. It's like uh, wine or cheese. It, yeah. It's different by the region. <laughs> right, right. So anyway, we went over all of that stuff. And, and then I had another fitting when the armor was still kind of in a rough shape. And there were some adjustments made. And that was really crazy because it's not polished or anything. And it's all kind of like, you know, roughed out. Uh-huh. And uh it looks a little bit like uh like Lord of the Rings kind of stage, you know, mm -hmm. of the orc armor, you know, where it's and I and I don't mean to draw that in to uh dilute the historical accuracy of anything, but uh, <laughs> that's what it sprang to mind. I was like, oh man, that's no, that's okay. I've, I've almost mentioned Game of Thrones like ten times, so we're right. good. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's the you know that's the that's the real danger when all of the the real hard edge historical nerds uh, get really uppity. You know, they're like, oh god, mm -hmm. don't bring up fantasy, man. Well, <laughs> <laughs> or LARPing. You know, you bring up LARPing too. That's because everybody. In, invariably, when you say, oh, yeah, I like fencing, but I like, uh, you know, they're like, oh, like Olympic fencing? I'm like, no, uh, longsword fencing. <laughs> What's that? And they think that I'm out there, uh, you know, fighting guys who are throwing uh, cotton balls at me saying, uh -huh. fireball, fireball. <laughs> Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Have you seen a good TV show or movie that accurately reflects this time period that you're talking about? Uh, not this time period in particular. I'd say if you want to see good kind of fencing, like the best fencing movie I've seen is kind of, uh, I think, hands down, Ridley Scott's first film, The Duelist. Mm. I don't know if you're familiar with that film, but it's a, it's kind of based on a true story of these guys during the Napoleonic Wars who were soldiers on the same side, but they had they were kind of frenemies. They entered a series of duels throughout the course of their lives, and uh, they never killed each other, but they, you know wounded each other very badly oh, oh but, wow yeah it was uh you know it was kind of a, a rivalry that that lasted their whole life but ridley scott made a film about it the duelist and and you know it's 19th century you know kind of cavalry saber fencing stuff but it still holds up i think as the best once you kind of experience fencing or, or sword combat or anything or you learn techniques because there are techniques it's not errol flynn or anything but i mean who wasn't bad by the way but 
you know, it's like you can kind of see the the choreography, right? And the mm-hmm. you know, because stage combat is a lot different than combat with a martial intent. That is very true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm glad you brought up the duelists just uh, for the idea of duels. You know, how do people or how did people back in the day get into these combats? Were they challenged? Did you challenge the other person? You know, was there a way of going about challenging someone as well? Oh, yes, there were protocols and there was a grand formality, you know, and depending on the age too, you know, challenges were issued in different ways, right? Like in in the the area of of Germany or the Holy Roman Empire as it was then uh you know you could you could uh challenge somebody to uh a, you know martial uh combat you know a, a a duel basically so if you were there at the time a duel would be official and you know the the winner would walk away and the loser would go away in a coffin. And, you know, that would be, you know, you could, you could say a a, a trial by combat basically. Mm -hmm. And was it for, for any reason, like somebody spills coffee on your foot, I'm challenging you to a duel. So like with the introduction of this weapon called the rapier, you know, which was kind of like, it started in, in Italy and it became like this widespread fashion. Uh, and it became fashionable to wear them uh, on your hip, you know, so it was like a fashion accessory as well. Uh, you know, and this happened kind of in the in the late 16th, maybe mid 16th uh, through the, the 17th centuries, you know, it kind of spread uh, from Italy into all parts of the West. And basically young men were walking around with these, you know, really long swords that they could hold with one hand, but they didn't really know how to fight with them. Uh, So, you know, and it was an Italian fashion to kind of the bravado and everything. And, and all these guys are walking around armed. So in inevitably Uh they started stabbing each other and, um, (laughs) and they started wounding each other really badly, but not killing each other, you know, because they were really unskilled, you know, they like, stab each other a few times in a back alley and walk away bleeding and then die seven days later of septicemia or something, you know, but, uh, but, you know, it kind of encouraged this Italian export business where they started sending these, these guys abroad, you know, or people, Italians who were abroad were like, Oh, I happen to be a master of the rapier. Uh, so they started opening these schools, you know, and uh. there were fencing masters in Italy who were kind of exporting fencing manuals and how, you know, uh, this new Renaissance idea of fencing, you know, that incorporated geometry and mathematics and, you know, astrology and all of the great renaissance things you know and uh, they could put them all in this book and sell it and basically eventually like 200 years later modern fencing was born wow and so 
So modern fencing came out of uh, this kind of rapier school, uh, which led to everybody, you know, carrying these longer weapons and the armor was disappearing from the battlefield because artillery was becoming more and more prominent and, and Mm -hmm. it became archaic, uh, you know, to have a a knight in full armor uh, out on the field, you know, and, and the social military system had changed anyway. So it wasn't kind of tenable in a lot of these places, you know, there weren't these, little lords sitting on these huge estates. It was all kind of chopped up. I mean, they still had money, but mm-hmm. it was different. Yeah. yeah not as so much. I went down a not path there. See, this is what happens. <laughs> well, let's, it's a good path. Okay. I want to go down a different path. Well, a parallel path, let's say. That is how we came to the modern fencing. How did you come to your love of historical combat? Because it is very, I mean, obviously there's so much more to the subject than I even knew. I'm like blown away. I'll be Googling this for days on Reddit um, (laughs) with all the other nerds out there. But (laughs) Henry, how did you like identify this as an interest and then go down the rabbit hole yourself? Well, this is a long story that goes all the way back to, oh no, the taboo subject of fantasy when I was a kid. (laughs) (laughs) I love fantasy, by the way. I I think you can appreciate fantasy and sci-fi. That's a whole nother conversation. Yeah. But that is me. So I love, you you know, I, I was into sci-fi as a kid, you know, of course, through Star Trek and, and then Star Wars and, and the lightsaber in Star Wars. uh, It's kind of, spawned this idea in my head of, Oh, I would, I want to get really good, uh, with something like that. You know, if, like I would, I could fight Darth Vader, just like uh, Luke Skywalker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so anyway, that kind of sparked an idea in my head. And then I kind of fell in love with, uh, ancient history uh, through a fascination with uh, the Romans. And so as a kid, I was kind of split between this fantasy stuff and the history stuff. And I started studying military uh, things about the Romans. And that led me to knights. And I became fascinated with knights. And I became fascinated with armor and swords in particular. Then cut to years later, um, not that many years later, but I'm 17 years old and I get a part in a film called Valmont in 1988. Mm-hmm. It was a Milos Forman film. And I play a knight, the Chevalier de Doncigny, mm-hmm. who has two fencing scenes uh, in the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has a fencing scene uh, with uh, Monsieur de Gercourt, who is a captain in the King's Regiment, and he has a duel with uh, Monsieur de Vicomte de Beaumont in the end. Uh, and I had to learn how to use an 18th century small sword, uh, and I had to I had to study fencing. Um, with two French guys and this uh, 
this French master who was about 65 uh, at the time. And uh, unfortunately, I'm, I, I don't have his name, uh, but uh, if you look at the credits of Valmont, you can find it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, they were, they were uh, you know, old theatrical fencing family, and they had done so much uh, fight choreography uh, for plays and, and films over the years. And they were great. And they moved like, you know, they, they were floating on a cloud of air. And I thought, <laughs> wow, this is amazing. I was 17 years old. And when I finished the film, uh, my fencing instructor told me, you should keep this up because you have a talent for it and you could be, you could be good. Um, you should pursue it. And I loved it, so I did. And I did some modern fencing, some modern epee fencing, kind of at a, you know, a- amateur level uh, in San Antonio, Texas. And then uh, later in California, I kind of did a little epee fencing over the years. But I basically kind of was more interested in the history. So I always kind of leaned more toward the classical fencing because modern fencing is fun, but it's so far removed from its martial aspect uh, that I'm always kind of wondering like, wow, I wonder what the real technique with a sword would have been uh, Mm -hmm. if I had wanted to (laughs) win. Well, and now now modern fencing is about especially now that it's become like electronically triggered at least from my like very layman's perspective it's more about like what do you do to trigger that alarm versus like how do you preserve your life which is a totally a different sport. way of fighting in indeed and that's uh you know that's the artifact of of sport and that's what happens uh you know over time like you know the japanese have so many different various uh you know arts like the art of drawing the sword you know the art of uh you know archery the art of archery from horseback uh all and Mm -hmm. the reason that they have those things is because they've had prolonged periods of peace that we've never had in the west right so they've had time to perfect these things but these things have become almost like sports you know and and you see that in the West with with sports, especially like martial, martially based, or or or, or sports with martial origins like fencing. Mm-hmm. And Henry, let me ask you: is is your family interested in this, or is this just something that's a Henry passion by himself? Uh, well, my son, who's twelve, uh, I've you know taught him fencing and. I've actually, you know, I laughed earlier about seven-year-old, but I've actually started his training at seven, just like a night's training, because that's perfect. That's how much of a geek I am about this. I I believe in that. I I believe. (laughs) Trust me, I believe in starting him early. Um, (laughs) Okay, so we talked a little bit about, you know, the how and the discovery, but what I'd like to dig into a little bit before we we let you go because this is just so fascinating is 
the why. What was it about this moment learning? What was it about this 66-year-old man saying, hey, you're really good at this? Like, what was it physically with you, Henry, that made you connect to the art form and made you like feel something unique that that spurred you, you know, going as far as having your own armor made? I think it it's just the culmination of a lifelong passion about history and swords and horses and somehow all of the different pieces they all came together and they clicked into this thing that I could I could then look at from the outside and say this thing is a real thing that exists in the world that I can kind of latch onto and enjoy indefinitely because it's an art. Mm -hmm. I can learn more. Uh, it's history. So perhaps we'll uncover more about it. We can learn more from it. It's this amazing encapsulated thing. And I love it. Do you think, this is something I think about with history all the time. Like I'll be walking on a hike or in the woods or, you know, doing in some remote area. And I'll think to myself, am I the first person to ever put my foot on this piece of earth? Like, am I literally the only, the first one to touch this section of soil? So with this um, historic combat, are there going to be any, do you feel there's still a first you can discover somewhere combining the history, the sport, the art, the, you know, everything. Can you, Henry, discover a first in this? Well, I think you discover firsts all the time through practicing martial arts. You know, you can, you can make the understanding as, as, as deep as you can take it, uh, with with a lot of things and for me martial arts are like that because you can think about the historical context you can think about the martial context and you can also think about the psychological context of these things and if you want to go further the spiritual context right which is an element in in a lot of martial arts but there's so much you you can take away from it as well as training your body and, and being physically fit uh, and, and gaining that through the process. I mean, it's win-win. Yeah. And, and then you get to pass it, pass it on to your son, which is very nice. I love it. Uh, Henry, we could talk about this all day. This was amazing. Uh, but I would love for you to do a love letter now to two historical combat and martial arts Dear historical combat arts, I love you so much because I learned from you. I feel like I can defend myself much better by knowing you. And I feel like my mind is expanding whenever I'm doing anything that involves it. So kudos. Love, Henry. 
That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Okay. So, Jake, <laughs> you haven't been with us for all these episodes, but there's sort of like a motif uh, which is kind of funny, but also kind of true with me where like, I really get into whatever the subject is and I go away being like, I'm definitely going to, you know, research that, or I'm definitely going to try that. And it, I think Henry is the first guest we've had where he actually has the same thing because when he was talking about his origin story of, you know, historical combat and the film he was in when he was like 17 and, you know, the fencing instructor saying, Hey, you're really good at this. Like you should keep on fencing. Okay. That was like, that was like someone was talking to me after the cheerleading movie. I did bring it on. They were like, you're a really good cheerleader. You should keep cheering. And for a while I went and told everyone I was quitting acting and I was going to be a cheerleader. Now, the difference is I did not do that, but I think Henry had a lot more validity. He t fully has not abandoned what he learned in that film, and I have such mad respect for him because of that. It's so impressive because, you know, he has his career, which is great and successful, but his passion, and it seems that he's dedicated so much, not only time, money, and energy, but his soul into becoming a fencer and historical fencing and just getting to the place where he is a master who could go back in time and probably kill some people, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I almost wanted to ask, like, you know, because he, he mentioned we were talking about, obviously, we talked a lot about the parallels that this, this combat form has now become a sport or an art form or a skill set mm -hmm. versus combat. Um, uh, a way of like weaponizing your body or staying alive and you know a long time ago and he had talked about that and I felt like saying well have you ever had to use like any of the techniques you've learned in real life but I didn't also Henry is such like a nice quiet mm -hmm. unassuming guy I didn't want to like imply that I thought he would be in a bar fight so I didn't ask that question <laughs> Oh, I, I would love if he was like, oh, yeah, weekly. I just get in fights and I just put these guys down and go about my day. Right? <laughs> we also we also need, I think we need to have him on a follow-up show because we really didn't get into, I want to know how many pieces the armor is, how often mm -hmm. he puts it on. And I don't know if I want to know fully what purposes he puts it on for, but, you know, how right? often does that armor come out? He didn't answer that question when I asked it. So I want to know that too. And I also wanted to talk to him about horses because that's something he brought up that he, you know, the, the connection between knights and their horses back in the day. It sounds like Henry's a horse fan and an animal fan in general. So I'm curious if that kind of merges, but there was just so yeah. much to talk about with just the combat with these, these swords that are basically irrelevant unless you're doing a reenactment or you're like Henry and you're just training to become the best at it. So I have a question for you, Jake. If you're <laughs> doing a reenactment, are you a reenactor actor? And not just an actor. Anyway, that we can talk to, you know, 
Oxford Standard <laughs> Dictionary and Webster's about that later. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for tuning in today. This was a great, Henry's just the best. And this is such the an best. interesting subject. I do want to bring, you know, there's a collection of the last 90, 100 episodes we've done where I want to follow up. And this is definitely one where I want to do a follow-up episode. So let's let's put that I, in the books, okay? <laughs> I'd love to do that. And I'd love, frankly, to get some lessons from him and then maybe he and I could fence one day. Well, yeah, or joust. Oh, yeah. Either way, he's going to win. Would you rather joust or fence? I would rather fence because... You have to believe in yourself, Jake. That's true. (laughs) If we joust, though, that's a whole thing. And if he hits me, I fall off a horse. I already have had back surgery. I don't need a second one. You know what I'm saying, Claire? Yeah, I do know what you're saying. I mean, I don't because I haven't fallen off a horse or had back surgery, but I also (laughs) don't want either of those things to happen to me. Horses are a little bit obtuse for me. I think I'm more of like, I like to look at them and their beauty and I like to see like the Budweiser horses like clumping down in a parade, but I don't know if I'd want to own a horse. It just seems like they're not self-sufficient enough for me. They've, you know, they've got to be able to take better care of themselves. Um, Anyway, that's also another podcast. Jake, we're done for today. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. We hope you have an amazing week. And until next time, don't forget, sharing is caring. Share this podcast with all your friends. Go to wearefanatics.com. You can see our whole collection of episodes there. And we are fanatics on Twitter. That is it for today, guys. Thanks for tuning in. Talk soon. Bye. All right, everybody, before you go, I want to remind you that next week we have an amazing episode with the one and only Alondra Delgado, and she is going to be talking about cooking. You've seen her in Mayans MC, Vita, Safe House, All-American, but you're going to hear her here next week talking about her love for cooking alone. So stay tuned and see you soon. Thank you for listening to Fanatics, a Roddenberry podcast. For more episodes and info, head over to wearefanatics.com or tweet your fanatics thoughts and stories at wearefanatics. Yes, that's we are F-A-N-A-D-D-I-C-T-S. Our show is hosted by Claire Kramer and me, David Magadoff. Produced by me, Claire Kramer, and Kelsey Goldberg. Executive producers Trevor Roth and Rod Roddenberry. Our sound engineer and editor is Elizabeth Joy Windham. And you can thank Stephen Mudd for our theme song. Catch us next Thursday for another Fanatics episode. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Enhance your listening experience with Wondry Plus. Enjoy ad-free listening, exclusive content, binges, and more. Join Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or on Apple Podcasts.